Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. So, Lord, we thank you for this morning, a chance to be together, to celebrate, um, to uh, enjoy um, friendship and relationship, to um, have an opportunity collectively and corporately to gather, to seek you, to worship you, to surrender to you. And as we open up your word this morning, may it teach us in fresh ways. It's your name we pray. Amen. This morning, we are continuing our series, Embodied, I got it right, Theology, this idea that um, our theology ought to be um, the total of who we are, body, soul, mind, and strength. Every square inch of our bodies, what we think, what we dream, what we say, what we do, what we believe, our ideas and dreams, all of it should be integrated in a mesh, not only um, theologically, but as we live in Christ and out of and in his ways. And so this morning we have a chance to get into um, a, a, a passage in the book of Romans that means a lot to me. Um, and as even before we get into this, the book of Romans is a New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Uh, the, in our Bible, with the Older Testament, or sometimes known as the Jewish Bible, is... Um, is, is the story of God's people, the Israelites, from kind of beginning all the way through the life of Christ. And then that next third, second half sometimes we call it, but the, literally like the third, is the New Testament, the, the, the books that are written to the first Christian church. And in that new section, the book of Romans, Paul, an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, not a second generation disciple of Jesus, writes this letter to the, to the church at Rome. And it is arguably uh, the, um, the high point of his theological explanation of the gospel. Theologians uh, and historians throughout the world have found that this book is so critical to understanding salvation and who Jesus is and our relationship in, uh, in Christ. It's so critical to understand doctrine and practice and all of that. And Paul is writing this book, and for 11 chapters, he gives us the most unbelievable doctrinal um, thesis on who Jesus is in the gospel. And in, at, at the very end of chapter 11, there's this, there's this doxology. There's this almost this poetic statement at the end. Now listen, he still has like five more chapters to go. But right at the end of this theological study, at the high point, the critical point of his, of his understanding of the gospel, he says this, Oh, the depths and riches the response that Paul is giving to how important theological this letter is, the first word that he can utter is, oh. Oh, how deep and rich is the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can be his counselor? Next. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him are all things. All things are in him. And for that reason, we give God glory forever. And he says that at the end of this theological study, before he's going to get into chapter 12, which is kind of like the practical side of this book. St. Augustine said that the life can be traced out in this kind of three-word idea, knowing, being, and doing. We learn something, it transforms us, and then we respond to it. It makes a lot of sense. But a lot of us in the church grew up with like knowing, knowing, and more knowing. That theology and practice was an intellectual exercise. But I said last week that one of my teachers years ago taught me that the greatest expanse in the universe is not here to the edge of space. It's the 12 inches between the mind and the heart. 
that often our theology and our doctrine and our understanding of what it means to be a Christian lives just up here in the space between our ears. But does it flow to every square inch of our beings? If all things are in Christ and all things are in God, and that includes all of our things, our bodies, our minds, souls, emotions, feelings, ideas, dreams, activities, our vocation, our finances, our possessions, our relationships, our intimacies, all of it is in God. And because of that, there's glory that ought to be given. Is it possible, though, to live out this holistic, integrated life in Christ here on earth? Back in the spring, Laurie and Joshua Landry and Ann Laurie and I went up to a retreat up in the mountains. It was kind of a, back in the spring, we were kind of like looking back at the last year and kind of visioning for the next year. We spent a lot of time planning and praying and seeking the Lord and asking the question, Lord, is there a next? And if so, what is it? And we had our identity statement that we had written the year previous about we are an imperfect community beloved by Jesus, seeking to live in him and his ways. Began to reflect on the things that God was doing in our midst over the past year and longing for what would be next. And we came up with these three goals, and I've shared them over the last couple weeks, but we can go ahead and put those up. They're not rocket science. We're not splitting the atom here. But we're naming some things that we long for now and into our tomorrow. And I I hope that these these goals never cease from what it means uh, to be a member and to belong to Jesus and to this community. But one week, last week we talked about creating space to belong and, and the barriers for that, but that's our desire is that we would belong in and with one another and in and with Christ. And this morning I want to talk about discipling our community towards holistic health. Next week we'll talk about developing opportunities to engage. Scripture is littered with accounts and stories of an embodied theology. From, from the beginning of our story, um, our bodies were made and breathed into and given life. You can follow and trace out the Old Testament from Abraham to Moses to David into the prophets. I think a lot about Jeremiah, an embodied theology that, that, that was the whole of themselves as they presented themselves before the Lord. And then we get into Jesus, and we remember from John chapter 1 last summer when we studied John for, um, for 21 weeks, that Jesus took on flesh, he embodied and dwelt among us. And then we watch Jesus live this holistic embodied life that was physical and emotional and spiritual and relational. But I think for many of us and many of the stories that I encounter from people in our community and elsewhere is that um, our practice in life, our theology, our doctrine, our practice often just lives in our mind but doesn't quite manifest to the outer reaches of our body. But I think that the Bible, and I I really do believe with all my heart that we are called to something more, something fuller, something fully embodied, something integrated, where there's right doctrine, often called orthodoxy, and right practice, which is called orthopraxy. This idea that you can't have one without the other. You have to have right doctrine to go along with right practice. That is what it means to live in Christ and in his ways. But it doesn't always happen. There is a disembodiment of what we believe, what we believe in our brains, and how we act. I'm kind of cautious about this because I don't want to feel like the examples that I can give up here about how this works are on other people. I I want to be vulnerable enough to say I've I've made mistakes in uh, a disembodied theology a lot in my life. i got to tell you, several weeks ago, several months ago, when the Ukrainian war first broke out, and refugees were fleeing Ukraine and going to Poland, that 
Christians were showing up on that border to receive these refugees. But instead of bringing them water and clothing and blankets and food, they brought Bible tracts that asked them about their salvation. Disregarding that the Orthodox Church has been in Ukraine longer than America has been a country. But instead of giving them the cold cup of water, instead of giving them the blanket and some food, it was disembodied and believed all it is is up here and all it has to do with our souls. Well, that's part of it. But there's more. There's more. God wants all of you. Not just parts of you. He wants all of you. And he wants to enmesh and integrate it. So Romans 12, this was an, uh, kind of a, a fun um, place to root ourselves this morning. When I was uh, a senior in high school in the, the year of our Lord, 1990, uh, I memorized uh, Romans chapter 12. It was a requirement in our youth group to go on a uh, spring break mission trip. We had, to, we had to memorize the entire chapter. I'd never memorized a passage of scripture. I was only taking Jesus seriously for about three weeks. And uh, the first assignment was you have to memorize like, you know, 22 verses. I was like, this is impossible. But I still remember so much of it. And I'm drawn back to this passage a lot because it is so embodied. Look and listen to these words. Therefore, what's it there for? It's therefore because of 11 great chapters of great theology and doctrine. And it's therefore because of the, oh, how great is our God. So because those things are true, I urge you. I urge you. The word urge sometimes gets translated in like the King James as beseech, which is a funny word that nobody uses anymore. But looking into this word, it's a compound word, parakaleo. And para means to be with, and kaleo means to be called into. The idea that Paul is saying, I am inviting you. I'm, I, I want you to come be with me. Be connected with me. This is not a disembodied charge. It's an embodied charge. I want you to come and be interconnected be with me so perfectly in community like a shredded wheat biscuit. There's no beginning and there's no end. But it's an embodied charge. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what are God's mercy? Chapters 1 through 11. Life in Christ, salvation, justification, sanctification, um, adoption into Christ, the plan that God has for you and for the world. Because of those things, offer your bodies as what? A living sacrifice. We're going to come back to why living is important here. And this living sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God. This is what it means to be a worshiper of God. So don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. And then the next few sec- uh, verses go into, like, we belong to a body and we all have uh, jobs and parts, and do your job, do your part, do your job, do your part. And then it gets into, if these things are true, then what do we do about it? Now look at these words. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. The word cling is the uh, Greek word for glue. Be glued to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. I love that Paul's like, and of all the things to do, practice hospitality because you're not very good at it. Be hospitable. But I read through this, and I read through this, and I read through this, and I look at words like love and cling and devote and honor and zealous and serve and joy and patient and faithful and share. Hospitable. I look, this is what an embodied life looks like. You cannot live the true and authentic, best, fullest life in Christ disembodied. 
You can't. And we know that because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus loved. He hated what was evil. He glued himself to people. There was devotion and honor. There was a a, a zealous nature that he had for his father and for the world. He served. There was joy. He was patient. There was faithfulness. He shared. He was hospitable because all of these things included others. You cannot live a true and authentic and full life in Christ disembodied. And Paul is inviting us to live this life in the way of Jesus, to make the journey from mind to heart, from fragment to whole. And he showed us this. And so these are why we have these three goals. This year when we talk about these three goals have to be embodied. They cannot be separated. I will tell you this, when we first wrote these, these goals, you know, um, creating space to belong and holistic, healthy um, community and uh, a, pl- a place to engage, that second uh, one that we're doing today, the, the uh, leading our community into holistic health, um, we first wrote it as that we wanted our leaders to be healthy. We first wrote the goal that we wanted to um, make space for our leaders to get healthy because our evaluation of where we were as a church and where our volunteer leaders were is that they were tired and exhausted and, and wondering if they had the energy to go on. And we knew without healthy leaders that the church was going to suffer. And so we wrote it originally is that we wanted to create space for our leaders to get healthy. And I want you to know as pastor that that's, that is a huge commitment. But we realize it can't just be specific to our leaders. We want our community to be healthy. And we want to disciple our community towards holistic health. We want to disciple our community towards an embodied holistic health. Eugene Peterson says this about discipleship. Disciples are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus We're in a growing relation always. A disciple is a learner, but not in the academic sense of a schoolroom, but rather at the work site of our craftsmen. We don't acquire information about God, but skills in faith, skills in living in him and in his ways. And so our invitation is, our our goal, our desire is that we would, um, as your leaders, as your elders, as your staff, as your um, small group leaders and and our women's leaders and our men's leaders and our youth leaders and our children's leaders, that we would provide pathways of discipleship towards an embodied holistic health. But it's a two way street. We can set up all of the pathways known to humanity. We could build 62,000 groups for you to gather with. But the invitation has to be received by you from the Lord, and you got to put one foot in front of the other and glue yourself. There is a two-way street here. And i got to tell you that um, thinking about this Romans 12 passage, and Scott, can you go back to the Romans 12, 1 and 2? When I went back and started to look at this again with a fresh set of eyes, I have this thing memorized and it became almost rote to me. I, I know all the words. I know all the words. I know all the words. But when it talked about a living sacrifice, something clicked and it really wasn't for me. It was in community processing how to teach this passage with Laurie, who's going to come up in a minute and lead us in a practice, but in this space of saying, do we understand really what this notion of a living sacrifice? The church at Rome would have understood dead sacrifices. Bring your grain, bring your birds, go to the altar, lay them before the Lord. Why? Because this is about um, honor and appeasement and um, forgiveness. But you bring dead offerings in a sense. 
But David, all the way back, um, you know, a, a thousand years before Jesus, makes this declaration before the Lord, you don't care about sacrifices. You care about a pure heart, a contrite heart, a broken heart, and a spirit that falls before you. He talks about the heart and the spirit. He's talking about his whole self, all of his parts. He says, you don't really want that. You want this. And if we go back and look at this, it says this. You, church, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, but a living one, an ongoing living one, one that's not going to stop living now on earth in Christ and in the next world with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the saints forever. Your sacrifice is living. The problem with living sacrifices is that those birds like to fly away. The call, the charge is, will you surrender all of your being the foot of the cross? Will you give it all up? And will you live? And in that surrender and in that sacrifice, God is going to do a magnificent work on your life and some of it's going to hurt like hell. And it's so worth it because the end result of all of this is our transformation more into the person of Jesus and less into the brokenness of the world. And the invitation is to become more like Christ. Wow. What a gift. But there's a cost. And Paul is saying, it's worth it. And that sacrifice is worth it. That is your act of worship. That is your act of worship. So I think Paul is doing something extraordinary that's existed all the way through the Scripture, but he names it so specifically. Will you, church, lay your life down? All of it, all of your parts. All of your parts. Body, mind, soul, emotions, feelings, ideas. Dreams, activities, vocation, finances, possession, relationships, and intimacies. Will you lay it down as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, so God can do an amazing, amazing work in your life? Can you do that? Will you do that? Will we respond? And church, I think this is what God's calling us to, and I'm really scared and excited about it.